Welcome to the Sugar Science Podcast, where our mission is to highlight and connect researchers in the type 1 diabetes space. I'm Monica Wesley, founder of Sugar Science and your host for today's podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jeff Millman. He is a professor at the uh, at WashU, coming to us from St. Louis. And um, welcome, Jeff. Thank you for meeting with us. I really appreciate the invitation. Thank you. Can you just talk to us a little bit about how you first became scientifically interested in type 1 diabetes? Yeah, I, um, when I was doing my uh, PhD uh, at uh, MIT in chemical engineering, I, uh, my lab ended up getting some funding at the end of my PhD from JDRF. Um, and being the senior graduate student in, in, in the lab, not knowing anything about diabetes or the pancreas or it's creating islets or beta cells, um, I was sent actually over to uh, Viacite, a company in, wow. in San Diego, to, to work there for about 40 days um, to learn their uh, methodologies for making um, pancreatic progenitors, which is what they're doing their uh, current clinical trials on. Uh, so I basically was uh, tasked with tech transfer to transfer uh, that work um, from, from their um, uh, facility in San Diego back over to my lab at MIT. And so once it came to time for me to defend uh, my dissertation and figure out what I was doing next, I um, was you know trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I really liked uh, research, um, and so I wanted to go on and do a postdoctoral fellowship. And I really liked my experience um, through this uh, JDRF-funded uh, grant, particularly having gone and worked at uh, Viasite for, for a little bit for the tech transfer and uh, sought out uh, the mentorship of Dr. Douglas Melton at Harvard University and he gave me a offer um, to join his lab as a uh, as a postdoc and I ended up going there for um, uh, about four years before coming here as a faculty member to to WashU. So it really was because of this early intervention uh, by JDRF that I became scientifically interested um, in diabetes um, and the use of stem cells and the study of treatment of diabetes. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and it's interesting that you came from chemical engineering too. I think that mm -hmm. that's not always a direct pathway into cell biology and, you know, islet biology and everything. I mean, do, did you know any other chemical engineers who came in to the laboratory? No, I, I'm pretty certain I was the only engineer during the entire time I was in, in, in Doug's lab. And I can, I, I've seen a few bioengineers who are, you know, doing some work in it, but nobody who is um, way into the stem cell biology like my lab tends to, to focus on. But um, so it's definitely not a career path. I would recommend people sketch out for themselves if they want to become a, uh, a diabetes researcher. But I, I do think that having the... Um, uh, the different perspective can be very uh, important for how you answer questions. Obviously, a lot of the, the science that I learned in engineering don't really translate over to making uh, beta cells or islet cells. Like, I don't have to like solve like complex differential equations or do mass balances or thermodynamics to do it. But I, I think that the the concepts of how to address a question and approach a question can can very much influence. Um, how one solves challenges in there. At least it gives you diversity in thinking, so you're not yeah. stuck one-dimensional thinking, you yeah. have multi-dimensional thinking. I totally agree with that, and I feel that, um, you know, the whole, the, the systemic rigor 
of being an engineer and bringing that into the biological space is also a really great thing that, that you, you know, you brought that, um, that with you. So yeah, kudos. And, and it, I think, uh, I do think it's, it's very important to have interdisciplinary input into the field. So what do you think about the, what's going on in the field right now? Um, you know, sort of like state of the art, what's the latest and greatest in your opinion? What's the latest and greatest? Can, can I say mine and stuff or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, but I'll, I'll say in general, I think the field right now is very hot and, and very exciting. I think that, um, you know, with the, um, you know, the, the f development and discovery um, of how to make uh, ins producing beta cells from stem cells that um, I and, and my um, uh, colleagues when I was uh, working in, in Doug's lab uh, figured out has really opened up kind of a new era of uh, research in, in diabetes. Now you have many, many groups who are uh, making their own stem cell derived beta cells or SC beta cells, I like to call them, uh, to uh, study like basics of disease mechanism or the involvement of particular um, genes associated with diabetes and, and how does that negatively affect the, the, the beta cell. And of course, there's that the work going on uh, with using these cells for diabetes cell therapy. So I um, I don't know if I can necessarily, I was joking about uh, uh, my, about my own work, but I would say, so I don't know, but I don't know if I can really say one particular thing other than to say that the, the field itself is just so uh it's gotten quite big and i think it's like very exciting and seeing the the different things people are doing with it um maybe most recently enabled uh by the greater accessibility of single cell technologies uh, yeah. which has become a pretty hot uh, tool to use in, in, in the field. I, um, I, I think this is like the best time that like a new trainee, for example, uh, could come into the field. I agree. I think it would be, you know, it's a really hot field right now and, and it's a great place for graduate students and postdocs to gravitate towards. I wonder, so now, yes, what you're all part of the latest and greatest. So, I mean, I've read a couple of your um, papers, your new papers, newest papers, and um, I'd love to hear you talk a little more about what the exciting work you're doing in your lab. What's going on? Right, so uh, I've been a faculty member now at uh, the Washington University School of Medicine for about five years, and we have been really um, mostly focused on trying to take the, the insta-producing beta cells that we could uh, make, we figured out how to make while I was at Harvard, and try to make them better and try to make them actually useful for study of diabetes and for cell replacement therapy. Because uh, while you know we figured out the necessary signals for making these cells back during my postdoc, uh, these cells were uh, particularly um, immature um, when you compare them to a, a, a real beta cell. And so a lot of the um, uh, work that my lab has been doing, the publications that we've had come out over the last year, year and a half, has been really focused on trying to um, overcome these weaknesses in the uh, technology. Uh, probably most excitingly, um, in, in my view, is the uh, functional maturation that we've been able to achieve uh, with these cells. Um, mm -hmm. So the normal physiological role of a, a beta cell in the body is that when it senses elevated levels of sugar, it should release an appropriate amount of insulin. And the, I guess, generation one technology, uh, SE beta cells, if you want to call them that, um, were able to do that, but they weren't very good at it. And they, they weren't very good responsive. Um, and they didn't secrete a, a lot of insulin per, per cell, at least not, not as close to what a real beta cell is able to do. So we, we've uh, identified, I think we just calculated this recently, it was about 29 
specific changes to the actual protocol that have in the end here allowed for uh, us to generate cells that are still not quite as good as the real thing, but they look a, a lot more mature, have a, a greater, much greater degree of um, robustness, um, having, uh, in particular, having a appropriate dynamic release of insulin in response to, to a high glucose stimulus. And all these changes that we can measure in, in the laboratory uh, result in us being able to cure mice with pre-existing diabetes better. So we need fewer cells to do it, and the um, uh, cure speed is basically on par uh, with the speed of cure if you were to use um, uh, islets from a deceased donor, which is what is currently done uh, in, in the clinic for cell replacement therapy. So I'm, I'm pretty excited Fantastic. about what we've been, yeah. Able, yeah, but what we've been achieve with that. Um, and, and it's very systematic too. I, I liked how you said there were 29, you know, uh, tweak points. Basically, that's very that's a very engineer um, style approach, and and kudos. That's great. And I think watch, watching university has been good for this because I've been able to. Um, I'm an, I'm still a relatively new PI, the five years into it. Maybe I'm not new anymore, but I still think of, think of myself as new. It was very important for me to build a, a team uh, that I, I felt would be able to solve these major challenges in, in the use of stem cells for the study treatment of diabetes. And so I've been very fortunate to be able to build my team being a mixture of people from uh, biomedical engineering backgrounds in addition to various types of, of biology backgrounds. And again, I think this relates back to what I said um, at the beginning of our conversation that I think you need to have multiple views um, on in terms of problem solving in order to uh, really over overcome uh, challenges that are in this field and probably all other fields as well. Yeah, I, I totally agree. How is how are the um, the oxygen? How's the oxygenation situation with these cells? Have you been monitoring that and tweaking that as you or their you know their need for it as you um, try to build the best beta cell? Yeah, the oxygenation question is very, uh, very interesting. Um, my um, kind of a little bit of historical perspective on it. Um, the, the reason that my uh, the lab also my PhD and got, got a got a grant from the JDRF is because my PhD work was in oxygenation and how oxygenation affects uh, differentiation of of stem cells and. Uh, so when I first uh, formed my, my group here, uh, that was one of the first questions I wanted to, to ask because I just simply didn't have enough time to do it during my postdoc because, you know, we were figuring out how to first make the beta cells. And uh, one of the things I was surprised by is, at least with the, the way that we are currently, uh, at least back then and, and currently as well now, uh, doing the uh, culture and production of the stem cell drive beta cells, is that the system kind of self-regulates its own um, auction level to, to an extent. Obviously, if you were to cap the entire thing and block it all from the uh, air of the incubator, then that they wouldn't be able to do anything. But the uh, clusters are able to uh, essentially have so, some self-regulation of, of their size um, and uh, and their the number in, in the uh, in the vessel to be at a somewhat optimal auction level uh, during the differentiation without us having to necessarily. Um, necessarily uh, actively control that. And so yeah. we're, we're now actually returning to some of these questions now to ask it more from a fundamental question as opposed to a, a manufacturing question. But um, I, I was, uh, you know, maybe initially surprised by that, but it actually um, matches some of the lessons that I learned during my uh, dissertation work that um, I was working mostly in the context of trying to um, 
make uh, heart muscle uh, for my THC. Uh, and the engineering came in and how I was actually controlling the auction. I built like special plates and special properties and stuff like that. Um, but the, uh, the uh, aggregates of heart muscle that we produce at the end would, again, like self-regulate their own size in response to how much auction uh, you are making available to them. So I think maybe systems have, uh, cellular systems can have a somewhat of an ability to, to self-regulate uh, themselves. Um, but um, going beyond kind of academic work into a, a um, like industrial scale, um, you're going to have to have much more active control of oxygenation because you won't be able to just, just rely on the system self-regulating itself. Yeah, I did speak to someone who was talking about um, the fact that when the eyelids are first implanted in, you know, uh, uh, pig and the porcine motto that they want to put the eyelets in when they're not totally through their program of um, development or you know they're, they're not at the end game really they just are um, they're, they're on their way but and that is uh, that that makes them survive the low oxygen of the early engraft better mm. um, yeah I've heard that argument as as well and I think maybe the devil's in the details here to really know if that way of thinking is the most correct or, or, or not. I think there's an argument to be made that less, less mature cell consumes less oxygen and therefore yeah. there will be less of a hypoxic insult to the cells immediately after transplantation. What you're um, taking away from that is control of the system. You don't have a uh, defined cellular products that you are transplanting into a, a pig or eventually a patient anymore. Yeah. You're having to rely on uh, the cells to kind of figure out what they want to be um, after transplantation. <laughs> they <laughs> oh, make the right choices. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that um, the work that's been done by uh, other groups uh, when it comes to transplantation of pancreatic progenitors, um, I, I think uh, it really illustrates how this could be quite variable. It's been work done by other groups showing if we were to take pancreatic progenitors um, and transplant them to mice versus rats, what you get at the end here is actually quite different. That transplantation in mice, you get a lot of alpha cells and relatively mm. few beta cells. In rats, is the opposite. You have a lot of beta cells and relatively few alpha cells, as opposed to if you're working with a like stem cell-derived beta cell or islet system uh, for which you've gone and fully defined what that what those cells are and, and their maturation state, um, you don't have to rely on, on chance or... Uh, individuals uh, physiology to to have that work out and so in the end here what is the I think there's there's, there's truth to, to both ways of thinking about it um, in the end what's actually going to be the, the best way to approach it is going to be I think a matter of empirical determination yeah I think so and and they're sorting that out still I mean the ideal way would be put the eyelets in when they're fully ready to go fully differentiated and then have a robust oxygen supply until the vascularization can take hold, right? Is that, that's mm. ideal, right? Ideal that, yes. model. Um, what about the whole fibrosis situation? Have you looked into that at all? You know, once yeah. they're implanted, the fibrosis comes in and chucks off the um, vasculature. And then of course you have to re remove the implant. Eyelid mm -hmm. implant. Right. So that, that'd be in the context of uh, the, um, approach is probably most commonly done, uh, uh, being studied right now in terms of dealing with the uh, immune system, which would be to have the uh, islets or sensor drive islets or pancreatic progenitors or whatever your favorite cell is uh, inside of uh, some sort of encapsulation. 
uh, a hydrogel or um, a microporous material. And what happens in that, in that situation is that the um, body will see that material and realize it's a material, uh, a, foreign, uh, a foreign body. So you get a foreign body response, which basically the, the body tries to seal off that area because it can't go and kill it because it's, it's an inanimate uh, material. And so the fibrosis becomes a, a big problem in this context because you uh, already uh, you're basically, as you're talking about, you're, you're basically choking off the cells that are inside of the device um, that are already kind of in a precarious situation because these encapsulation materials themselves don't allow for blood vessels to grow into the device. And so you have to rely purely on diffusion of oxygen and insulin and glucose and other things in order to keep the cells alive and in order for the cells to have its, um, their therapeutic uh, effect. And then you're making that problem worse by having an additional layer of fibrosis on top of the material that just makes that uh, the speed of that diffusional process um, even even slower. And so I think it's a big problem. Um, and I, I know there are materials um, out there that um, have varying degrees of um, a um, anti-fibrotic uh, response. But uh, again, I think the devil's in the details here, and it really remains to be seen if that's going to be sufficient. Um, it is possible that um, even if you had a um, perfect material that this is zero form body response, um, the fact that you have to rely on diffusion in order to um, keep the beta cells alive might make that uh, make it impossible to transplant enough cells to cure a individual. And the problem, the reason before this is that you need about a billion cells uh, in order to cure a adult uh, of diabetes. We know this from the Edmonton uh, uh, protocol transplantations of uh, cadaveric islets. Um, and so it is, it is very possible that um, you are always going to need vascularization in order to support that many cells. Um, and but maybe um, an antifibrotic material is sufficient for it. Again, it kind of it comes down to the details, and then it comes down to what you can uh, achieve uh, in, empirically here. Though, with that said, people have been looking at encapsulation um, uh, approaches for for islet cell therapy for about three decades or so, um, and I. Um, uh, it's and there had and there had definitely been advances um, with that in, in, in recent years, but um, unclear if there's just a fundamental limit of what can be done here. Yeah, there was a nice paper that came out from Ron Evans. I'm hoping to speak to him soon. Yes, uh, mm -hmm. yesterday, nineteenth, uh, about the he's got some immunovasive human islet-like organoids, mm -hmm. um, and they are you know kind of like overexpressing PDL1. This kind of interesting mm -hmm. concept uh, way of approach it, but that's sort of not really fall. You know, we're getting off base here. But I was going to say <laughs> about your work. Let's go back to your stuff. So the thing I was talking to another scientist um, the other day at UVA, and they were he was saying something kind of funny, and I wanted to. So he's like, you know, I said, what are you doing at your your spare time now? You have a lot of time at home. He goes, yeah, well, I have a lot of these this RNA seq data, so I'm just going through them with R, and you know, I'm like this and this NYU group has this Surat method for real. It's a widely available to really go through your RNA seq, and um, I, I guess this guy Rahal Sajida at NYU is. Yeah. doing that. I mean, are you doing, are you finding yourself, you know, going through your data since you have some time at home and, and going back over it or, cause I know you do a lot of single, uh, you know, RNA seq. Right. Um, and I, I, uh, 
I think single star sequencing has been one of the main things that has like helped to keep me in my lab's uh, sanity during this time uh, to allow for us to feel feel productive because uh, I, I think the um, the pivots towards analyzing single star sequencing data sets in order to you know come up with uh, improved ideas or hypotheses is is, is nice it allows for you to be productive allows for you to do do stuff with. Um, uh, even if you can't be um, in, in the lab. And we had a complete shutdown of my lab for a few months and only like maybe two months ago wow. uh, we're, we're allowed to, to open up um, at, at partial uh, capacity. We're still only at 60% capacity of our uh, pre-COVID-19 levels. So yeah, definitely that has been uh, really good in terms of managing time. And I think, um, I, I think the very first papers that came out um, in general, not just data cell specific, but the first papers that came out with single authority sequencing uh, were um, maybe not very useful for answering biological questions. It was more like, hey, this is a cool tool. If people were doing it with the various systems, they'd be like, hey, look, we're the first to do single authority sequencing on cell type X, cell type Y, cell type C. Um, and I know that a lot of people uh, in the field were making jokes about it because it was like, do single authority sequencing get a cell science nature paper? However, I've been very... <laughs> I've been very happy to see um, in the last, probably the last like year or two, um, that people have uh, been able to pivot to use this um, technology to actually start answering biological questions or to be coming up with new insights to the biological questions, as opposed to just doing a, like, hey, look, we spent thousands of dollars to see what sequencing, give me my cell science nature paper. Um, <laughs> and so I think, it's been a, I think it's been a bit of a revolution in, in the field right now. And I think we're just at the beginning of what um, people are going to be able to get out of um, single star already sequencing for, for their own work. And, and I know um, for, for, for my lab uh, in, in particular, it's given us a, a lot of insights into um, how, um, um, how the, the, the state of the cytoskeleton uh, in, in particular uh, affects um, like what kind of pancreatic cell that you came, came down uh, with. It, it, it allows for us to answer, ask these questions in kind of an unbiased way. We never thought, for example, that if you um, hyperplumerize the uh, cytoskeleton uh, that you actually get pancreatic exocrine. Like we don't look for exocrine usually in yeah. our immunostating and PCR. So we did the experiment. Uh, we, we figure out conditions that uh, induce um, uh, endocrine, but also found that the opposite is true as, as well. And that's an insight that we never, ever would have actually like looked into and asked. And, and it was because we could see it um, because of the unbiased nature of uh, single, uh, single star sequencing. We were able to see that and get that sort of insight. Uh, yeah, it's also been very useful for disease modeling uh, as well, that um, oftentimes uh, a lot of um, genes associated with disease can also affect your differentiation yields uh, that you get when you do a stem cell differentiation. And so you can imagine if you have like uh, two uh, flask of cells, flask A and flask B, um, and the flask B has the mutation uh, that you, you care about, but that also mutation also makes it so you have... Um, a third of the beta cells you normally would have, if you go and you do um, uh, real-time PCR or, or, amino, or, or immunostaining or whatever, you're going to see like all these genes are lower in flask B. Um, but that doesn't necessarily tell you anything about the disease, it just means that you have like fewer cells there. And so for another paper we published uh, somewhat recently that, that we had that phenotype, single cell already sequencing was allow allowed us to basically overcome these dilution effects, if you will, yeah. of the fact that the mutation reduce differentiation deficiency 
it did not, and therefore like real-time PCR and other kind of bulk population methods didn't give us insights into the disease. It didn't give us insights into the dysfunction the beta cells had, but single was already sequencing a lot for us to go and, and look at that. We were surprised to see that um, a lot of the usual suspects for beta cell genes, the beta cell transcriptional network, actually was largely intact. It was relatively unaffected uh, based on the Z state. Real-time PCR told us those genes were lower, but when you normalize this um, because it's uh, single started sequencing, uh, this was not the case. It was only um, genes associated with insulin processing and stress um, associated with insulin processing that was elevated in, in these cells. I think if we would have not had single started sequencing, we would have published a paper where we said beta cell transcription factors are lower because of this, um, this um, uh, diabetes causing mutation. And we would have been wrong <laughs> because yeah. it was because of the dilution effect. So you I, back I, I think curtain. it's really great. You basically pulled back the curtain and saw what was really driving the effect, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I think, uh, so things are interesting, still expensive um, versus like doing real-time PCR and, you know, still kind of hard to, to use because you do have to work in um, um, the, the R uh, coding environment to use uh, software suites like Surat or mm -hmm. Monocle is another, another common one as, as well. But um, I do think that, that getting over that uh, investments to be able to do that can, can really provide new insights into your, your research that you're trying to do. You, of course, want to be careful about the question you're trying to ask with it. Right. So maybe as part of the first year grad school, uh, curriculum for cell biologists and, you know, maybe even geneticists. We sh they should be, you know, taking an R course for sure. Mm -hmm. If they haven't already have one. Um, yeah, that's, um, that's fantastic. I love that uh, illustration that you just uh, were talking about. It's really cool. What about, um, so do you have any postdocs in your lab right now that are, you know, working on some interesting projects? Right. Um, so I have uh, two postdocs who are both um, biomedical um, engineering in, in their background, and, and they're both trying to basically use uh, different tools that are in the biomedical engineering uh, field in order to, um, uh, to get new insights in, into um, the cells. So maybe the one that we, we have the most progress on right now is um, using microcontact printing in order to control the, the size and shape and arrangement of cells uh, and, and seeing how, how that influences them. So microcontact printing is um, having literally a, um, like a PDMS stamp for which you have uh, micro patterns onto there. You can coat um, uh, like ECM proteins in our case on, on top of that and then plate it down onto a surface that's uh, that, like glass that uh, beta cells or, other, or whatever cell types you're trying to look at normally would have attached to. And that the stamp will deposit ECM on that surface, so the beta cells can only attach to where that did, uh, where the ECM was deposited. And you can, you can vary what the pattern is on your stamp there to have like you know wow. big dots, small dots, rectangles, lines, um, things like that. And so you kind of is, uh, is this person trying to make constructions then of of different constructions and see how they operate? Yes, essentially that. Um, you have to change like what ECM you're doing. So you have like multiple like endothelial cells and beta cells there um, in order to try to understand um, what's going on. And a lot of this is motivated by the uh, paper that we had come out this year, um, yeah. again, on, on the side of skeleton and basically by uh, varying the size and the shape of um, 
the way cells are um, deposited uh, or the way the cells are attached to a plate, um, mm -hmm. you are able to change uh, the state of the cytoskeleton as, as well and, you know, can potentially uh, affect the um, outcome um, of, of these cells, the phenotype of these cells in terms of function or gene expression. So this is still very, very early days because um, these tools weren't really built with beta cells in, in mind. Yeah. A lot of the work yeah. that we do is like kind of taking what people have done with these tools and other systems and figuring out, okay, so what works and what doesn't work when it comes to, to beta cells. And a lot of that becomes trial and error. Before we can even go and ask the question, I know what is the effect of um, like this pattern or this cold culture on, on, on the beta cells. But the data we have right now, uh, I think is uh, looking quite promising that this is, uh, this is uh, good and, and important. And the hope would be that, you know, we can get these, you know, use bio bioengineering tools to get fundamental insights into um, what kind of physical microenvironmental parameters are important for the cells, and then go and translate that into a like scalable production process. Or so like noise paper, or something. Yeah, organoid type thing, exactly. So that's what we did with the um, uh, with the paper on the cytoskeleton earlier this year, that we uh, like basically were looking at um, ECM uh, protein composition and stiffness of substrates to figure out how that influenced differentiation and, and found in particular that soft substrates were very promoting of um, uh, endocrine cell fate. And we, you know, did small molecule screens and stuff like that to essentially um, make this into a, uh, to basically do this with a small molecule as opposed to needing to have soft substrates for that. Cause it's always going to be limited. You're always going to have like working with soft substrates is hard. Cells yeah. don't attach to soft, soft substrates for a very long period of time. And like a beta cell takes about a month. Um, and so this allowed for us to like practically be able to make um, beta cells and be able to make them um, at, at a scale that is uh, useful. That is very cool. Um, yeah. It's a great time to, to be a, a student in your lab, I mean, there's so it sounds like there's so much applicability and, and so much room to do more work on there on that uh, mm. model. That's really well, we definitely cool. have many more questions than we have people right now. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll be broadcasting that, and hopefully, someone who's interested, a, sci a young scientist, will hear this and be and and maybe you know give you a holler. Um, I right. guess the last thing I wanted to. Um, well, I had two more questions. One, you know, regarding the cytoskeleton, mm -hmm. the beta cells are connected by gap junctions, right? Mm -hmm. So, and like, is that, I mean, and I don't know if you've even looked at this, but is there any change in the, um, the gap junctions, their distribution, or even their, if they're there or not as the cell, as the islets um, start to undergo dysfunction? Undergo dysfunction. Yeah, as they that, start or, to like not function, you know. Oh, I see. Well, I um, the, the easy answer is that we haven't directly looked into that, so it is part of um, the study that we're doing right now because we think that our microcontact printing methodology would allow for uh, better study uh, of that. But yeah, I think the so, so, you're telling me. Yeah, so I don't know specifically about that, um, though I wouldn't be surprised if the answer is yes. Um, but I think it speaks to the greater issue here um, that's very important to me, um, that in the goal of trying to make an inspiration beta cell, it's not just like, like comp adding in compounds into the cell culture media yeah. and, and then ignoring everything else with it. Like how you handle the cells and the particular environment that you handle the cells in can be as important in making a beta cell as the 
active in A or TGF beta or Noggin or whatever else you're adding to, to the cocktail here. And so I, I guess the, the biggest um, thing I was um, I, I wanted the field to take away from the uh, cytoskeleton paper earlier this year um, is to, to, to be um, open and, and think about that. It's not just what you learn in your biology classes about single transduction pathways, the physical environment can really have a big influence over, over your cells. And I think maybe a good example of, of that is that everybody in the beta cell field knew that you could not make beta cells uh, with them simply attached to a Petri dish. Right. We all knew that you needed to have them in a three-dimensional environment in order for that to happen. And uh, the um, rationale that uh, myself and other people gave at the time for that was that it was more, 3D is more physiological. Um, and when people say that, that means they have no idea what is, what's the point of there. But it, but it sounds better than saying you don't know. Um, and so what everybody did there. Um, and um, I, I think that the cytoskeleton paper uh, shows us um, that it's not just, you know, being more physiological. There's actually no reason you can't make beta cells attached to a, uh, attached to a Petri dish if you have understanding of this uh, of what's happening in the, within the cell and, and how the cells are responding to the environment in this case it was because of the stiffness of the plates cause a uh, a high degree of actin polymerization within a beta cell and a high degree of actin polymerization is a, a negative signal for making endocrine and that is not present when you have cells in a three-dimensional organoid uh, where you get kind of all soft, squishy cells kind of all, all around there. So it's not a matter of like being more or less physiological. It's the signal you're giving it. Um, yeah. And so I'm yeah. hoping that the sort of um, broadening of people's thinking of the question of making beta cells or making any other cell type uh, from, from stem cells, it's not just a beta cell thing, um, will lead to... Um, new innovations and new studies by other groups. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's totally so well said. And, you know, bringing in this whole nother layer of complexity and starting to pick it apart like you're doing is just so laudable and so great. I, you know, I, I think it's so exciting. Um, okay, well, I just wanted to ask you, you know, just sort of um, for the young researchers out there with the COVID constraints and everything, do you have any words for them or do you have anything else you want to share with the, the scientists who are listening? Yeah, it's, um, it's scary. And I think we need to be um, very um, open and honest and upfront about that. So it's, um, yeah. it, it's scary. I mean, but, but personally for everybody, it's scary, but professionally, this is a very scary time to be um, a, a trainee. Um, and the, it's, it's important to remember that it's important to remember that um, it will be impossible to be as productive during this time as you would have been if there was no COVID-19. And so I think people need to have realistic expectations of themselves and not feel bad uh, because they weren't able to go to lab or they can only go to lab like two, two hours a day or, or something like that. Um, we're all in the same boat. Um, and so we're all having these, these restrictions there. So there's no falling behind, but I, I find that a lot of trainees can put a lot of pressure on themselves and, yeah. uh, it's important to make, to avoid doing that, to make sure you have a good support network, uh, in case you are, you know, uh, upset or feeling uh, feeling bad about this, and maybe this is a good time to learn R and learn how to use Surat. <laughs> exactly, exactly, perfect. 
Well, that's so great. Thank you so much, Jeff, for talking with us today. Fascinating work that you're doing. I think it's, um, I think a lot of people are going to listen to this and, and get some new ideas and uh, think about things in a different way. And, and that's, that's fantastic. So thank you again. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you.